illustration on my picture is from the Cambrai Apocalypse. It's more than 700 years old at the time when there was a huge artistic investment in the book of Revelation and making it <coughs> more accessible for, for people. So there is John on the side there inside my circle looking through the window inside to the heavenly council. So there is something going on inside that room and he is not there. He never speaks inside that room. He only watches what others see and what is happening there. And you and I, now thousand, a long time later, we are looking at the same scene over his shoulder. We are seeing it in some ways through his eyes. That's where we are. So <clears throat> here, just by way of review from last night, looking in to see the seven seals, looking through the window or the open door to see the seven trumpets. And here still, far into the book, looking through that same window to see what happens from the seven bowls onward till the end of the book. That's the perception, and I think the artist got it just right. So <clears throat> here we are, open heaven, open door. After this, I, I saw, and look, a door stood open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet spoke to me again, saying, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This is a composite. This is the figure that appears, one like a son of man, who appears in chapter 1, among the seven candlesticks, and he has a, a double-edged sword in his mouth. And here, John is in a posture of reverence, as he is in chapter 1. Here, you have the seven, the angels for the seven believing communities in Asia Minor. And here, we have the voice saying to John and taking him by the hand, come up here and I will show you what will happen, what must happen after this. Uh, so the illustration is quite amazing. Here is another one. This is the Trinity Apocalypse. It's from 1230 uh, about. So it's 800 years old by now. It is in the possession of Cambridge University. And these are the most uh, what should I say, the most uh, fine images of, of that period. So here again we see the heavenly council, don't we? The, we see the four living creatures. We see the 24 elders. We will see them again <laughs> next hour here in our own church. And then we have <coughs> the, uh, John outside and here is the angel, or the voice from heaven. It's not identified whose voice it is. And the voice is saying, come up here. It says it in French, Monte Easy. You know, the <coughs> angels at that time, they were French speakers. And, ang and the language of that region, the, these are Anglo-French apocalypses. The language in these illustrations is actually French. Imagine, it's amazing. Come up here, and I will show you. That's what we have. 
And uh, there is our text again. And just to highlight this and magnify my uh, illustration a little more, now John is up there, and he is looking in on what happens. The lay of the land, the anatomy of the heavenly council, and the concerns of the heavenly council. What is going on? What is it? What's on the mind uh, of the heavenly council? <clears throat> so... <clears throat> There is a promise of revelation in the book. First verse, Apocalypsis Jesu Christu. And that, the promise of a revelation, of a disclosure, is a promise kept. It is acted out in the book, in, especially in this scene, when, you, when John is invited to come up and I will show you. So the first one who gets the revelation then is John himself, and we get it through him. And the rest of the book unfolds in a heavenly setting. We never leave that setting. You are there in that chair, not moving and seeing what plays out like a movie in some ways inside the heavenly council. And <clears throat> here is a point that is easy to say, but maybe not so easy to understand. Seeing it up there is as important as what is seen down here. There is a tendency to read Revelation as though it is history told for our benefit. But the story of Revelation is a story told primarily for the benefit of the heavenly council. And to see its import, we have to adopt the stance, the sort of sits im Leben, they say in Germany, the setting in life of the heavenly council. What is on their mind? What bothers them? And that's what will be answered, what will be playing out. Open is a big word in the, in the book of Revelation all the way through. Open heaven, open scroll, open little scroll, open temple, twice open temple, open heaven again, 4 1 and 1911, and then an open book at the end. So that something is opened, that something is made accessible and disclosed is at the heart of the whole book. And the notion that it is a book of Revelation and Apocalypse is, is, is thus uh, well supported. So open door with a welcoming mat in front of the door. <clears throat> and here you see the sign. Uh, and it is a 24-7 type of thing that there is openness and access. So... Let's just do a couple of contrasts here, just kind of perspectival uh, issues in relation to ourselves, how this book might be useful, how it could, uh, what sort of meaning it can give us in our uh, situation. <clears throat> so here we are looking at the heavenly council, and we are looking at the way God runs things, and what does what strikes us right from the beginning, the openness of God. This is not quite openness of God in the same sense of my friend 
at Loma Linda, Rick Rice, <coughs> who wonders about how much God knows of the future. That is not at issue here. That is not my comment. The here it is how, to what extent God practices secrecy, to what extent God is a, uh, has a, uh, is a, God's governance is a governance of transparency. And you will not, uh, there is controversy in this, this country right now about some documents that are taken uh, from the Washington DC and put somewhere else and those are classified documents. Because this country, like many other countries, including the country of which I am a citizen of Norway, they are countries that have lots of secrets. <coughs> I think this country has more secrets than Norway. <laughs> <coughs> and the secrets we have in Norway are trivial. They don't make much of a difference. <coughs> but here, this book by Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was a senator from New York, he wrote a book that was highly acclaimed at the time, about 20 years ago, a little more, about secrecy <coughs> and how secrecy in governance erodes trust. How, in some ways, democracy that is that depends on citizens being informed of what their governing authorities are doing. To some extent, that becomes impossible if there is no transparency. So here is one of my favorite church historians, Sir John, <coughs> or Sir John Acton, Lord Acton. He is the one who says that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He is, in my view, one of the finest church historians of of uh, <coughs> the most last two, three centuries. Everything secret degenerates, even the administration of justice. <coughs> Nothing is safe that does not show how it can bear discussion and publicity. So God, does God practice transparency, access, openness, in a way that invites trust. And the book of Revelation, I am proposing the book of Revelation with the transparency of divine governance, governance as a contrast to the lack of transparency in, other, in earthly governance, even in the countries that are really, really good. And I think in the main that you are living in a good country. But there is... You know, we have issues. So here <coughs> is another one as a contrast again, not on governance now, but on human experience, human existence, an existential predicament. Are we on our own? Are we left to ourselves? And here I will use Franz Kafka, who was a Jew <coughs> living in the Czech Republic in what was then Czechoslovakia, and who died at a young age. He died before World War II. Uh, he did not <coughs> experience the Holocaust. He died of tuberculosis, probably. Uh, and here we have been uh, visiting in Prague. And uh, I think his book, The Trial, and 
Do I recommend it? I kind of do. I kind of think that is a book that, that is reflective of much of human experience in the 20th century. That there is, where is God? Not exactly easy to tell. And there was communism. There were totalitarian governments that would arrest you and you would not know, you wouldn't even know what they arrested you for. You know, that there was that kind of issue. And that's, in behind, that's behind the book by Kafka, The Trial. And there is a court there. He is arrested. But he never gets to know what he is arrested for. You know from the beginning of the book that he is going to suffer capital punishment. You know that he is doomed, but he never finds out what is the problem. What am I arrested for? Due process. Habeas corpus, it's called also, that you have the right to your body. You should know what the, what is go what the government will do to you. And so there is a court, but he never gets access to it. He, all the book, it's, like a, it's quite a t terror to read it because he wonders how he's going to meet this court. And finally he gets to the door. He is at the door of the court. And the doorkeeper keeps him waiting and waiting. And then the, he says, well, you could bribe me. It won't help. But at least you tried. You tried everything. You know, that's the kind of uh, feeling there is. The doorkeeper accepts bride so that you do not think you have left anything undone. I have had that type of experience many times with patients who have terminal illness. And all, all the possibilities are, you know, exhausted. And there is still that feeling, maybe there is something else I should try, you know, even if it may not help. There is similar similarity there. So, at the end of the book, <coughs> he wonders, why am I the only one here? Joseph K. is the character in the book. He is standing at this door, the access to the door of justice, and it seems like he's the only one there. Where is everyone? And then the doorkeeper says, no one else could ever be admitted here. Since this gate was made only for you, and I am going to close it. And now I'm going to close it. That's the 20th century, described existentially. Maybe one doesn't feel that quite as much in this country. We feel it in Europe in many ways, because unaccountable authority, God receding more and more from the perspective of human experience, and the book of Revelation as a contrast. Open door, access, come up here and I will show you. That is why I think a book like the book of Revelation can profitably be read alongside books that are the most telling philosophically, existentially in our time. I hope you hear me on that one. So here is another one, Revelation as contrast. And now we are, uh, <coughs> we did governance, we did existence, and now we are doing the theological tradition. Is there anything in the book of Revelation that challenges the theological tradition, the Christian tradition? And I have written a book <coughs> called The God of Sense and, and Traditions of Nonsense <coughs> that uh, Mike mentioned last night. 
And that is actually quite central to the theme of my book. The illustration is from the book of Job, where Job is crying out for a God who will speak to him and make sense of his experience. You will agree that's a fairly good, fairly uh, reasonable description of Job. And his friends will tell him, don't expect that. First, they will actually explain it. But then later on, they will say, you should really not expect an explanation. You are very, very small. And God is very, very big. And the distance between (coughs) divine transcendence and human finitude is huge. You can't, there is no language between heaven and earth. No, no, No way for heaven to make sense on earth. You see, that's the, in Job, here is Augustine. <clears throat> this is Botticelli's uh, painting. This is not how Augustine looked. Nobody knows. Uh, looked, uh, nobody knows what he looked like. But Augustine is the most influential theologian in Christianity. In the Roman Catholic tradition, in the Lutheran tradition, somewhat less so in the Orthodox tradition. But Protestants and Catholics hold Augustine in high regard and actually agree on this point here. God decides who are to be offered mercy by a standard of equity which is most secret and far removed from human powers of understanding. This is how the mature Augustine thinks. There are contexts for these statements He is discussing something in his time. He was by then a bishop in North Africa. He was a bishop of Hippo, which is in today's Algeria. Uh, That city is called Annaba. And I have been there with my youngest daughter once. And I met the current bishop of Annaba. There are very few Christians left in that area. But North Africa was Christian territory for several centuries until the Roman Empire disintegrated, as it were. This is how Augustine thinks. This is a cornerstone in that Christian tradition, that the door isn't open, as it were, that understanding isn't an option, as it were. And here is Luther. That <clears throat> Luther was an Augustinian monk, And whether you talk to Luther before or after his conversion, before or after his great discoveries, he will say exactly the same, where he will actually say it more after his (coughs) conversion, because this is what he says in in an argument with, with Erasmus of Rotterdam, who was another great intellectual at the time. By the way, I am planning to share my slides with your pastor. And if anyone wants to see my slides and read these quotations and look through it again, you can get them from Pastor Mark because I want to do that. That's my type of pedagogy. This is Luther. This is the highest degree of faith, to believe him or God merciful when he saves so few and damns so many. And to believe him righteous, when by his own will he makes us necessarily damnable, 
so that he seems, according to Erasmus, to delight in the torments of the wretched and to be worthy of hatred rather than of love. If then I could by any means comprehend how this God can be merciful and just to display so much wrath and iniquity, there would be no need for faith. Martin Luther says, understanding is not an option. What is he describing here? He is describing his own conviction that human beings are by divine decree destined for salvation and they cannot say yes or no on their own. This is God saying yes or no. And human beings, let's say you guys on that side, and there are more people on that side than on this side. So all of you, the majority, are by divine decree destined not to be saved. If by any chance I could understand such a God, Luther says, there would be no need for faith. That is deep in the Christian tradition. But it is not the theology of the book of Revelation. The theology of the book of Revelation is a God who opens the door and who invites you in. And he says, I want you to understand. And I don't you know, want to coerce you or in some other way uh, achieve acquiescence on your part. I want to show you and then we'll see what happens. So the Christian tradition, including and especially the Protestant tradition, favors divine inscrutability and human incomprehension within a paradigm of faith. That's true. But there is more to this <coughs> than uh, meets the eye. And <coughs> I was about to digress now, but I won't, so I'm going on. <laughs> Revelation, by contrast, brings to light a God who invites scrutiny and who, upon scrutiny, makes the case for trust. <clears throat> so, summarizing those three points now. The openness and govern of the governance of heaven is in co uh, contrast to the secrecy of earthly government. God is a better ruler. His system is in some ways more deserving of trust than even the best government, uh, governments we have. Democracy is not great. It is the best we have. And maybe there is an element of democracy in the divine government too. If so, it is a open and not, and not a governance of secrecy. And then you have openness as the remedy for deeply felt, for the deeply felt existential predicament. The sense of coming to a closed door. This door was made only for you. But now I am going to close it. That's what the voice, the doorkeeper says in, in Franz Kafka's book, The Trial. And then <clears throat> this one. Openness is theological corrective the corrective to alleged divine inscrutability. Either a God who does not want you to know, or a God who thinks that knowing is none of your business. We have not covered much text yet, but we will <coughs> go on, and I uh, <coughs> read on now in chapter 4. Right away I was in the spirit, and look, 
here there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. That's what he sees first, the throne. And Revelation is quite circumspect. It doesn't say, I saw God sitting on the throne. There is a kind of deference there, a kind of humble way circumscribing the divine presence, not sort of seeing or describing directly who he sees, but we understand that it is God. So, first then, we have throne. We have a throne as a symbol of order, that there is someone there. The universe is not empty. And there is presence, there is order and authority. A throne and a throne with someone sitting on it. The throne as occupied space. But here is another op uh, option. Not simply when we come in here, the throne as occupied space, but the throne as contested space. God is sitting there, but someone else thought that I should be sitting there. And which of these should we favor? Which of these two should be our preference when we read a book like Revelation? I'm asking you now, those of you who were here last night, for the re-reader perspective. Which one is better? Occupied space or contested space? From the re-reader perspective, we would have to say <coughs> that we have not done justice to what Revelations, the throne symbol in Revelation, unless we have recognized that it is actually contested space, that there is something going on in regard to the throne. <coughs> Around the throne are 24 thrones, <coughs> and seated on the thrones are 24 elders, dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their heads. That those are the ones at the periphery here, and the artist, I have counted, <laughs> counted the figures to see that he just, you know, approximate. <laughs> there is exactly 24 figures, 24 elders in the Trinity ap uh, Apocalypse. <clears throat> and, and here is a text, Revelation uh, 4-6, that is very hard to translate. In the middle of the throne... And around the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The four living creatures are here. This one, this one, this one, and this one. But <coughs> this is the challenge for translators. In the middle of the throne and around the throne. Now you draw that. You know. You will have to take architect education or some other education. It's very hard to do. It's easy to do around the throne. You should think that would be where they belong. But they are not only around the throne. They are also in the middle of the throne. And in the middle is a very intriguing, telling concept in the middle. That's where God is. So there is, you know, the... Four living creatures are encroaching on the space reserved for God. I have magnified it here, and uh, so you can see it a little better. And then I try to represent it to, <coughs> with, to fit the title. First, the title of this slide here, Participation and Power Sharing. That's what I see. And then 
uh, anatomy of power in the middle of the throne and around the throne. Because, <coughs> and this is often the way it's done, that the heavenly throne, that the throne of God is way, way far away there. And the distance between uncreated reality, the distance between divine transcendence and humans, human finitude, that distance is huge. But that distance isn't huge in Revelation because the creatures, the four living creatures, where are they? What are you guys doing there in the middle of the throne? And you know also the promise to the church in Laodicea, you, they will sit with me on my throne, you know, or one of those texts there. So <coughs> we go on. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and inside. They are seeing beings. They are seeing beings. And having eyes is, 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 shows the capacity for insight. That's what that symbol uh, signifies. Day and night, without ceasing, they sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. The Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is a day and night in heaven. This is what greets him. This is what he hears. And we know that there is an Old Testament echo there. There is an echo from the book of Isaiah. <clears throat> I grew up in a village much smaller than Squim. I want to say Sequim, but I am trying to unlearn that. <coughs> I grew up in a, much, in a uh, rural village community much smaller than this, and I was the only, we, our family were the only Seventh-day Adventists in town. And we had Sabbath school in our living room, and, and quite tedious ones, I have to say. They just went on and on. And there was a, t a text that I just could not get to like. I just could not like this text that a vision of heaven, on, that they go on day and night, the, uh, these living creatures, day and night, 24-7, they say, holy, 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 the God Almighty. And I just thought, wow, you know, what on earth am I going to do there? You know, <coughs> this will be, you know, quite insufferable, quite boring in the long run. And I would be wanting to you know, sneak out, you know, unobserved and find some, some uh, you know, other thing. That's how I thought as a child. <coughs> I don't think so anymore. <coughs> so there is a reason for this. There is a reason. This is not just a mantra or a sort of someone just playing the same thing over and over. There is a reason for it. <coughs> this, I don't think I can show this, but... This, is a, a, this slide is, is a, a meant to show a day and a night and just uh, see how the day and night changes and go on and on like that, but it doesn't play uh, uh, here, so let's skip it. <coughs> R. H. Charles wrote a two-volume commentary on the book of Revelation that was published about 100 years ago. Most commentaries get out of date, the newer ones come, and I will say on the, in the main, the newer commentaries are better. 
but his commentary is an exception. It has had amazing staying power, and it can still be read with, with profit. I have liked it very much. And many of the things he says I agree with. I, don't, I want to read a couple of things here to see what you think. With chapter 4, the chapter we are reading now, there is an entire change of scene and subject. The dramatic contrast could not be greater. The moment we leave the restlessness, the troubles, the imperfections and apprehension pervading chapters 2 and 3, we pass at once in chapter 4 into an atmosphere of perfect assurance and peace. Earthly, earth, there is mess and noise and uh, chaos and war and famine and all kinds of things on earth, but in heaven there is peace. It's wonderful. It is a wonderful contrast, he says. An infinite harmony of righteousness and power prevails, while the greatest angelic orders proclaim before the throne the holiness of him who sits thereon, who is the Almighty and from everlasting to everlasting, and, whose, and to whose sovereign will the world and all that is therein owes and has <coughs> owed its being. How what else could you say when you get into heaven and there is day and night people or beings saying, holy, holy, holy? So that is his impression, that heaven is a contrast to earth. On earth, here, there is chaos. In heaven, there is calm and order and peace. That is R.H. Charles' take on it. <coughs> so here is the perception. From earthly conflict to heavenly calm, and heaven turns out to be what we expect it to be. Heaven as the solution to earth's problems. That's just like we hoped and just like we uh, expected. But <clears throat> let us try this one. And now we do it with re-reader perspective on Revelation. First we have the heavenly scene in chapter 4 verse 8 that they sing, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, and they do it day in and day out. They do it day and night. And then we read in Revelation 10, uh, 12, verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, now have, become the, come, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down. Who accuses them? Day and night. And now, the flavor of the day and night without ceasing in chapter 4 changes. And my, me, the little boy, sees it differently and come back in, you know, because... There is a contrast here. There are two opposing voices. There are voices in conflict. There is the voice of accusation, the voice of trouble, of discontent, uh, also being uh, <coughs> featured in this book, and in some ways the premise for much of what happens in the book. So here, <coughs> someone has written a, a wonderful work on on the songs of Revelation. And they, this is a German, German scholar who's written, and he hears the song of proclamation, he hears the voice of 
acclamation, but he doesn't hear the voice of accusation. That voice that underlies the other two voices and in some ways precede them. So here you have the, in Revelation here, Revelation 12, 10, the, the accuser of our brethren. There is a voice of accusation. There are voices of proclamation. There are voices of acclamation countering that other voice. That's what we're seeing. So R.H. Charles and some other very good and very eloquent Revelation scholars, they get to see this scene, Revelation chapter 4, and you see a contrast between earthly chaos and heavenly calm, but you miss the point. I really think you miss the point. Those who sing holy, holy, holy are not merely putting in an ordinary day at the office. You know, they come in there, they check in their time card, another day of this, holy, 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 you know, till next morning or till you check out and then you come back for more. There is a fierce conflict here and that conflict is visible to the rereader of Revelation early on in the book even at such a scene here, and here is how I will uh, say <coughs> this is the conventional perception. Come up here and I will show you conventional perception, earthly conflict to heavenly calm. Heaven turns out to be what we expected it to be. And here is, <coughs> in my humble opinion, the corrected, <laughs> I put it like this, <coughs> the corrected or the correct perception, but uh, take it, I say it tongue in cheek from earthly conflict to heavenly conflict. That's better. That's more like it. Heaven turns out not to be what we expect it to be. Heaven is awash in problems. And that's quite different. And this is where a cosmic perspective changes everything. The rereader perspective perceives that, as it were. <coughs> so, <coughs> we have now... <coughs> Uh, revelation. First, uh, I want to end up now by, by uh, asking, and as time might permit, we have till we have to 10:40. I want to let you out at 10:30, and I want to have a. Um, uh, how's that? <laughs> I think we should. We'll we'll see see how it goes. I'd like to take just a last sort of sweep of it to discuss with you and with scholars why there should be a book like the book of Revelation, how one perceives the book in general. So <clears throat> we could have Revelation as a response to a need <clears throat> that it can remedy the problem of ignorance. And that, of course, would be true. There is ignorance and there is a need for Revelation to remedy our ignorance. And then there is <coughs> the problem of concealment, that we have a cosmic problem here, and the other side is not playing fair. The other side is practicing concealment. The other side is, in fact, pretending to be something it isn't, and likewise charging you know, something like that on God. Uh, so this is the third one, then, to remedy the problem of slander, that there is a fake news <coughs> uh, element in, in our world. And Revelation gives us, removes the veil on all of these points in response to a need. 
And here is the fake news thing. Here again, we have Revelation. I will let that play twice. Here. Revelation then as a remedy for the problem of concealment and the problem of slander. Both, all of these are worthy things. In, for all of these, revelation is a response to need. <clears throat> so here, the opening word of revelation, the word apocalypsis, has given birth to a genre of literature, apocalyptic literature. When that word was first used, nobody thought that there is a certain literary genre that is called apocalypsis. That came later. But the notion of revelation as a genre is now quite established. That is what scholars think. And they think that apocalypses are written, uh, uh, are written uh, to, uh, as a kind of response to need. That apo the apocalyptic as genre is understood to be a found form of crisis literature. And there are many books on this, thinking about this literature. There is a sense of problems on earth, and an apocalypse emerges as a response to that. And you will know that there are many apocalypses that are not in the Bible. There were many written in the time that the book of Revelation was written, some before and some after. And the, Book of Enoch, for example, is a book in that category. So, <clears throat> people say, when you open a book, you should know to which genre it belongs. Because when you know the book's genre, you will come with some degree of fore-understanding. You will understand what you are getting into. Let's say that if you read a book on medicine, a, a medical textbook, you approach that medical uh, textbook different than when you read the National Enquirer. You know, that would, <coughs> that, that would you know, be obvious. So here is my comment that determination of genre is, is useful if we get it right, but it is not helpful if you get it wrong. If you make the wrong call with respect to genre, you can, you know, you thought you were reading that, but it was something else. It, you get it. <coughs> I see that. So here, on the subject of the why of revelation, is the incentive or the trigger, is that our wish to know? We are earthlings, and we would really like to know. That's, is that how it is? Or is the other option that God, it is in God's disposition to let us know that here, that God pulls aside the curtain. God initiates something. God says, I want you to know. And God initiates that quite apart from what we think or do or so. We Yes, there is a need for us to know, and who knows what, what the truth is here. But let's look at a couple more slides. So and there is an initiative from below. That's really how people think when they assign genre to revelation. Apocalyptic literature as the form of crisis literature that we want to know. 
initiative is from below. Or here in the other one, the initiative is from, below, from above, that there is an open door. I looked and there was an open door and a voice said, come up here, I will show you what will happen. You know, you see the contrast here. <coughs> here is my uh, proposal that God's disposition to let us know exceeds our wish to know. That there is a much stronger side on the, the, on the from above thing than we have maybe realized and certainly more than scholars realize. <coughs> so this goes very, very deep in the biblical tradition. And here is an example from Abraham's discussion with God before or in connection with the problem at Sodom, of, of Sodom. And I have used a translation here that is very precise. <clears throat> the deep roots of revelations, why? Why do we have such a book? God, uh, God says, and God is thinking to himself. This is not something God is saying. He is thinking it. Shall I hide from Abraham that which I do? And the phrase here, the term is a general phrase. Shall I hide from Abraham how I do things usually? How my, my, my ways. Uh, so not merely on this occasion, but as a regular practice. And then God answers, and still this is something that is in God's head, but we are uh, made aware of it in, in, in uh, the text of Genesis. God answers his own question. No. I won't hide it, for I have known him. And again, very precise conversation. This is God making contact with human beings from a sense of wishing to know. There is a kind of reciprocity, a kind of mutuality to it. I feel obligated because I have known him. It cannot be exaggerated how profound that is, how strange that conversation is. And it is not divine inscrutability. And it is not human incomprehension. It is a completely different trajectory here. And I have written a chapter on this in my book, and this is part of it. <coughs> so, one more example. I think we should do that <coughs> if, if uh, we could. Here is, an, here is a scene from Revelation chapter 10. This is the angel that has an open book in his hand and who swears by him who lives forever and ever, the uh, angel with a little book opened in his hand. Uh, and he, tell, he gives the book to John and tells him to eat it, and then he eats it, and it was very sweet in his mouth, and then... Not so good afterwards. <coughs> so, here is what the text says, accompanying this. In the day when the seventh angel blows his trumpet, then will be brought to completion the mystery of God, in line with the good news announced to God's servants, the prophets. So, what is our method number two when we read Revelation? Method number one is to be a re-reader. Method number two is... Old Testament background. Let's do it. So pay attention to the Old Testament background. And here is one first from the prophet Amos. 
Surely the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. Does it sound like Revelation had that text in mind when he wrote what he did? It sounds like it, doesn't it? So God is in the business of disclosing stuff. And then <coughs> there is another term there, the mystery of God. Where does that come from? Because that part is not in Amos. Where is that? It's in the book of Daniel. So here, <coughs> let's go over this very familiar story from a chapter many of us have heard many, many times and like it. Second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed such dreams and so on. What's the problem with Nebuchadnezzar's dream? I can't remember it. I can't remember what I dreamt. And he thinks that dreams are communications from God. So he would like to know what, the, what was the point. He thinks that the gods communicate with humans that way. And <clears throat> here is <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar is at that time in the city of Babylon. And my wife, Serena, she <clears throat> was born 10, uh, 100 kilometers north of Babylon in Baghdad. So she has lived in Baghdad the first 17 years of her life. And uh, her church, that small Seventh-day Adventist church in Baghdad, used to do picnics to Babylon. So she has been in Babylon. I have also been in Babylon <coughs> much later and not not with that sort of sense of belonging. This is a cradle of civilization. We are, you're in the new world here. You can't compete. <coughs> so here we are. This is from the Ishtar Gate that has been preserved now authentically in um, the museum in Berlin. And we have seen that museum several times. And here is Serena in her home home turf seeing these amazing figures from the Ishtar gate that you can still see from that time of Daniel. And <clears throat> so, so we have to interpret the dreams and the Chaldeans that are <clears throat> summoned because he kept on his payroll people who could interpret dreams. That was part of how they did it. Those were his advisors. The Chaldeans answered the king, there is no one on earth who can reveal wh what the king demands. In fact, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king is asking is too difficult, and no one can reveal it to the kings except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. My, this is honest stuff. <coughs> Makes Nebuchadnezzar very angry. Because for years, these people have interpreted dreams that he thought were communications from God. And they have never challenged that premise. Now they do. They say that God doesn't talk to people that way. We were just making up stuff. <coughs> so, in the tradition of interpreting dreams, we have in the Bible Joseph. We have in the Bible Daniel. They are the big ones. And we have in our time Sigmund Freud, who wrote a book called The Interpretation of Dreams that is one of the really, truly influential books written in the 19th or 20th century. I have read it. And, and so where does Sigmund Freud place himself? Well, he agrees with the Chaldeans. He agrees with the Chaldeans. 
because he will say to his patient, to his client, just as the Chaldean said to Nebuchadnezzar, you have to tell me the dream, <laughs> and I will interpret it. This is sensational, because here the interpreter, the therapist, as it were, he is expected to tell the patient the dreams. Actually, Sigmund Freud did something quite like that. There is a kind of a movement in America and in the Western world called the false memory movement. And that's where the therapist tells the patient what they experienced. And actually, Sigmund Freud, to some extent, was guilty of that. <coughs> there is a story that, that, that is, is, is part of the problem. So I do not want to disparage him entirely. <coughs> but I have heard a, a lecture, and I've read this book, and I have heard a lecture by the person who, who wrote it. <coughs> Sigmund Freud, as, as the expert, you know, the sort of uh, icon here on the wall, and as the therapist, and as the patient. It's very self-referential. That is what the, what the illustration shows. Well, we have to get back to Daniel. <coughs> so, and I, I, want, I will not read the text now in, in detail. I'll just, uh, I'll just paraphrase it. So, Daniel first prays to God, to get them out of this predicament. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Here. And he goes <coughs> to, yeah, this is uh, the uh, next one. And then he goes to King Nebuchadnezzar, and he tells him, you know the story well, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show you the king the mystery that the king is asking, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. So here, that phrase in Revelation, the mystery of God, that is a textual fragment most at home in the context of the book of Daniel and most at home in the context of Daniel chapter 2. And here... <coughs> we have it revealed. So I just want to show it just for the fun of it. <coughs> Here is Nebuchadnezzar who's had a dream. He thinks that this dream came from God. But the next morning he can't remember it. So he is completely, there is no line of communication anymore. So Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> he contacts his uh, soothsayers, his advisors, and Daniel shows up. Daniel, he prays to God and ask God to help him. And God answers Daniel with <coughs> the message explaining it. There is communication. God is revealing something in the world. And then Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar and tells it, but it is Daniel mediating a message from God. What did I want to do with all of this? I wanted to say, and I will read uh, a summary too, but I wanted to say that we have the book of Revelation not just as a response to human need, but we have Revelation, we have the Bible, and we have the book of Revelation primarily because of the kind of person God is. It is not initiative from below. It is not even the remedy for concealment, even though it is that. It is more than that. So, 
We find heaven's governance is, governance, governance is open, accessible, and transparent. We find governance that is participatory and empowering. We find a contrast, heaven's openness in contrast to secrecy of earthly governments. And above all, with the other side's attempt to cover things up. And we find revelation. The revelation of the mystery of God. Of God. We find God revealed. That's the bottom line. Not as crisis literature. Not only because there is ignorance and concealment. But mainly because of the kind of person God is. Come up here and I will show you. You're not going to turn that invitation down. <laughs>